You are live on Facebook, and you are live everywhere else, too. Sermon Audio and our own live page on the website. Okay. And I've pushed all the appropriate buttons. I'm ready. Okay. Ah, well, let's see. Before I get started today, I just wanted to let people know, because I've gotten quite a few questions whether or not I'm going to do something like this, and I've mentioned it in the past, and that is RMNA, RNA technology, but messenger RNA. Um, this technology uses genetic information, and it makes it very interesting to me because of Luke 17, times of Lot, times of Noah, the age of Lot, day of Lot, day of Noah, day of the son of man. They, uh, and of course it's a ribonucleic acid is what RNA is, and this messenger, what they're being able to do is, is assign, uh, genetic information from a virus and then enhance an immune system to attack it. Now eventually they're going to, in, they're going to assign genetic information from cancer. That's the goal of the mRNA system or technology. And then, of course, now they will have targeted antibodies towards cancerous tumors, which will be a dramatic advancement in medical technologies. I am looking at it because I want to see when does it begin to get to anti-aging because I know these one of the aspects of these tech billionaires is they are pouring billions of dollars into anti-aging because what's the benefit of having all of this money and power if you cannot utilize it for, a, for an extended period of time. So they don't want to die physically. Uh, and that, of course, is, an, is a conflict. I don't have it on the board today, but it is a conflict between, for your sake, Genesis uh, 3.17, Genesis 3.19, dust for your sake or for your salvation. Anyway, I'm starting to accumulate a lot of information I know, you know, I looked at the discovery in 1961. I've looked at the, uh, the ability to recreate an mRNA that wasn't fragile in 1984. And then, of course, now we have it, uh, being used as vaccination against these COVID, uh, pandemic structures. So in any event, I will be, I'll be waiting into that for those of you who'd like to get ahead of me. Okay, and differential equations. We we have to do differential. You can't do biology without math. It just doesn't doesn't work. It's, they are okay. They're not. But I'm going to do it anyway. April the twenty fifth, two thousand. Get off of that spot. I have to move just a little bit. April the twenty fifth, two thousand twenty one. Lecture discussion number one thirty five. There's my glasses on the book of Joel. Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. Uh, the lovely Lori and I were joking that I'll just start reading off all of the uh, chapters of the Bible at some point. <laughs> just name them all as we go, but uh, I decided not today. Today, we're going to be advancing further into these four questions uh, that uh, from the preceding two Sundays in the interest of attempting to reach a conclusive, substantive result, maybe. So let me review these just really fast. Pastor Sherman has this wonderful question on the head of Goliath and the implications of it and why I have a position that the cross and the head of Goliath are, are in the same exact location. Uh, 
And so that's a that's a fantastic subject. The mystery of the head of Goliath, unnamed Anna, who will not be named Anna, and we will not name her name Anna, wanted to know about the visuality of the breath of life, which is, again, extraordinary. That has implications. She wants to know why the breath of life is not visible, or if it is visible, but ultimately why it is not visible. I've extrapolated that out. Uh, Valerie, of course, uh, she was interested in the for your sake that I just mentioned, the dust, the body going to dust, the angelic Im- impacting or imparting, if you will, um, the what the angels are doing because you the body is returning to dust because the two are set together. So Genesis 3.17, Genesis 3.19, and and uh, the for your sake are tied to the angelic realm. Now, how is that so? And we've been covering that a little bit. I Hopefully I gave you some kind of indication. And then the fourth one is Christ on the cross. Uh, and that's Hebrews 2.10-18, uh, the purpose of the cross. Uh, what he is doing there. And, and how everything that he did while on the cross is centered around Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. So those are the questions. And maybe we'll get a conclusive uh, result. Maybe. And so far, as usual, there's pathways that um, have been developed. Mostly they're divergent. They're just going everywhere. I get that. That's part of my methodology, as you know. And that, as you know, is the prevailing Cliffsidian tip template. Is it Cliffsidian or Cliffsidian? I'm not sure. Is it a long or short? Cliffsidian? It sounds more impressive, doesn't it? Cliffsidian. Anyway, we have these intertwined serpentine. Is it serpentine or serpentine? Okay, good. <laughs> that was actually a joke. I'm glad no one laughed but me. But we have those routes and they're seemingly discursive. Notice how I said seemingly. And they're all twisted together like a ball of snakes in your in your crawl space if you don't live in Alaska. We have very few snakes in Alaska. Well, apparently, there's a couple down in the southeast, but I've never seen one this far north. And uh, that's why we like it here. But uh, in, any way, in any event, we have all of these routes, discursive, seemingly, heading off into the wilderness in different directions. It's some multifarious tracks, if you want to think of it that way, all going on. Uh, everywhere that we could possibly imagine. And therefore, it is occasionally compulsory to bring order to this illusionary chaos. Illusory would be the better word. Or as Rudolf Claudius might say, my good friend Rudolf, we have to convert this high entropy that I have given you into low entropy by means of an introductory energy or an intelligent agency. Everything tends towards high entropy unless in an isolated or an open system, irrespective, some kind of energy is placed into it. Isolated would not be as obvious as open system. So, as you know, cliffside is an open system. It's not isolated. And we do follow classical thermodynamics here. And, And we do tend, or I tend, towards irreversible equilibrium which means I tend towards high entropy. I throw a bunch of material out there. It looks like a big mess. And then we have to try to collect it and bring it back in. That is my analogy with Rudolf Claudius. And that's a, so it's, what I'm telling you is that Cliffside is a physics euphemism for anarchy or rat's nest or unholy mess. You pick your favorite. But I am the highly trained religious professional and I'm assigned the obligation to provide uh, 
some order, some fuel, some outside energy to this process. And some might retort that it is contradictory for the one who provoked the disorder to be assigned the renewal. And I have no retort to that. I've yet to form a cogent response. And if I ever do, I'll let you know. Mm. Uh, In the meantime, we've got this wonderful mystery of the head of Goliath. Just, uh, it's amazing. I have not, I don't, I have not gone into it to this kind of detail in the past. All I thought that was necessary was to say, look, this has happened. That has happened. The cross is on top of the head of Goliath. Just recognize that amazing truth and figure out what it means. Obviously, Genesis 3.15 is the first place everybody goes, but it is the, the beheading and the burial of Goliath's head is concerted with the cross of Christ. And this is the lifting up of Christ, which is also the brazen or the bronze serpent. And the fiery snakes, the seraphim snakes, seraphim fiery. And this leads us to Genesis 28, 12 through 15. The ladder on which the angels ascend and descend. I should make a ladder and put it here. Okay, I'll do that. So this ladder, that cross, that Goliath's head. I'm putting together into a, a triad, if you will, or into a subset. So once the ladder on which the angels are ascending and descending, which of course ties to the archangel Michael's victory at Revelation 12, and also why he said what he said in Jude 9. So all of that is together. And again, it's flying all over the place. It's all wrapped up like a ball, ball of snakes. Uh, twine, and we got to try to unravel it, and hopefully I'm able to do some of that for you today. I realize that I don't want to do it. In other words, I want you to do it. I just got to get you just enough information where you don't need me, and that's, of course, my style, as you know. And obviously, there are many more pieces than these that, that I just gave you. I got John 3, of course. That's the ascension and descension. That's Nicodemus shows up there. He knows that Christ is the Messiah. He may not know that he's God himself in the flesh, but he is right on top of it. And Christ gives him another assignment, which is water baptism. And that leads to this ascending and descending or Genesis 28, 12 through 15, because he brings it up there. That's also Proverbs 30, the mystery of Agar. That's Psalm 16, 10, that the body can't go to corruption. That's Psalm 10, that there is no accountability for Satan. At least Satan proclaims that there isn't. There's no adversity for him. He will never be held account. God won't do it. Why are you afar off? Why do you hide? And uh, Genesis 1.26, which is the most powerful, uh, maybe that is the us. That is the Elohim. That is where God reveals to the angelic host, which is on the ladder, that he is triune. Now, they're not on the ladder yet, but they eventually end up on the ladder, right? We'll get to that as we go along in Genesis 1, 2 through 5, which is where the darkness, of course, is attenuated or are beaten back, but not eliminated. It's still half there. And of course, the countdown clock begins at the fourth day. After three days and three nights, we have that. So those passages are all involved in this. And there are many others. I I didn't do it all. But for today, how does Goliath's head apply to the ladder? 
Because I'm saying these three are all there. How does Goliath's head apply to the ladder? Now, the obvious thing all the time, you, you say, people will, will say this occurs. They see the cross and the ladder. But how does Goliath's head fit in there? If the cross and the ladder, if you accept that, that analogy. He says there, of course, in, in Genesis 12, um, or 28, 12 through 15, I am the God of the living. That's a definitive statement. I'm the God of living. Matthew 22, 32. The I am that I am himself, which is Exodus 3, 14. The Bernie Bush, what's your name? My name is the I am that I am. He gave us at Matthew 22, 32, the solution to some of this. But concerning the resurrection of the dead. Now let that sink in for a second. We know that he calls himself the I am that I am. And he says again, that he says again to the Sadducees at 22.32 of Matthew, listen, I'm going to give you, you ask me, what's the solution to this ridiculous, what you think is an oxymoron or a conundrum that can't be solved, the woman and how many husbands she's got. And my answer is Genesis 28.12-15, the latter is the solution. That's what he says. But he's, before he says that, he said, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am that I am, I am the God of the living. That's pretty much the order. Considering the resurrection of the dead. So obviously, what have we now learned? That the latter has something to do with what? The resurrection of the dead and the fact that he is the God of the living. So again, let it just sit on that for a second. I'll wait for, I'll get some water. Somebody sing the Jeopardy music. Do you know the Jeopardy music is played by a what? Do you know? That's right. You're right again. No one said anything. Just a, a trumpet. It's beautifully played. Whoever plays that is fantastically uh, accomplished. So that's how you know that I didn't do it. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read Genesis 28, 12 through 15? Now, I've tried to bring it together for you. That's essentially what he says to the Sadducees, because the Sadducees believed, as you know, as most people who've watched these, these videos know, they believe that in the Torah, in the book of Moses, in the Pentateuch, I'm sorry, Moses never talked about or never said that there was a resurrection. And Christ says to the Sadducees, essentially this, you idiots. Now, he's a lot kinder than me. Christ is rebuking them, though. Have you not read Genesis 28, 12 through 15? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living as God defines the living. Now, again, I added that part. But that is essentially 28, 12 through 15. So he is saying, he is saying concerning the resurrection of the dead, we have what I said at the latter of Genesis 28, 12 through 15. Haven't you read that? I am the God of the living, as God defines living. And when the multitudes that were listening to this heard it, they were absolutely astonished. Because this is the first time that the Sadducees had been beaten. They thought they had, much like who else in the Bible, they thought they had an unanswerable question. Who do they represent? 
where did this this conversation happen before? And who else was involved in it? But in this case, Christ is saying resurrection is true. And he points out where it is in the book of Genesis. So it astonished everyone. So Genesis 28, 12 through 15 is fundamentally about the resurrection of the dead by the living God. And to repeat some of this, Christ, before he installed time, Revelation 13, 8, before time was installed. The lamb is slain. The lamb slain before time. Before the foundations were formed. The lamb slain. And I should interject here really fast. (sighs) Whenever you talk about time, we have contemporary physics. And contemporary physics has proposed gravitational time dilation. And all that means is big words, but all it means is there's a curving of time by gravity. They believe that gravity curves time. That's an Einsteinian concept, general relativity. Gravity distorts time. And note that the over all right now, everyone listening to me, all over the vast internet audience, I'm I'm, I'm much like a I'm very much like a Vegas hypnotist when I do this. As soon as I say gravitational time dilation or the curving of time by gravity or Einstein concepts of general relativity, gravity distorts time. As soon as I say that. I have instantly put dozens of people to sleep. Just whap. And when I snap my fingers, they will wake and cluck like chickens is my hope. But, uh, <laughs> but I have this relationship to uh, the uh, the entertaining hypnotist. Notice how I say that. If you think, it's the old adage, if you sit at the card table and you don't see the sucker, then you're the sucker, right? Then it's you. If you think that those Vegas hypnotists are not seating the audience with their employees, then, my goodness, I can't help you. Well, never mind. Some people are predisposed to being influenced. They're pleasers. And they get, they are, you are able to manipulate them if you are expert in manipulation. So, Anyone who wants to manipulate another human being that way, I'm suspicious of whether or not they're narcissistic, but that's another it's a psychological profile for us to endeavor to understand. But I get it. Gravity and time are not subjects and they don't that people want to hear. They do not captivate. They do not produce enthusiasm from the traditional churches, especially, which is actually a great shame. The church should never have conceded the creation of all things to the atheists. And that has been a tremendous failure for which the church, I think, will be held accountable. Uh, If you study it and you become fluent in the madness that is atheistic philosophy, uh, I believe that's essential, especially for somebody that purports to have the solutions to death, which is what the church should be doing. We are the ones who believe in resurrection. Uh, We are the ones that say death is not, there's no finality to physical death. There is finality, but it's destination and not, or it's destiny and destination. It is not existence. So I think, I think being fluent in, again, what I call the insanity of atheistic philosophy is absolutely critical for the church. And that's my view, and most churches will veer away from it because they do not want to lose what they think is the intelligent people in their audience. The scientific community, they want to reconcile, they want to be accepted by them. I have a PhD in 
I don't, but if, for example, somebody who has a THD, a theological doctrine, he wants to be in the doctrinal club. He doesn't want to be excluded, so he will concede what I would consider ridiculous concepts in order to do that. It's not necessary. Einstein and the concession uh, that the church has made has cost primarily the children of the church because they have they are not in any way in this fight and they have no understanding of it so they become they get run over and it's a great shame i've said that many times einstein has not defeated newton quantum gravity has yet to surface and when it does general relativity will be destroyed it's overwhelmingly obvious the physics community knows that general relativity will fail but you'll never hear them say it. Certainly won't say it from the church pulpits, which is a shame. Once you get into quantum gravity, you understand, wait a minute. This gravity thing is a, is a big deal. So eventually we'll do that. Uh, but I don't have, obviously, times, uh, time to get into definitions of gravity but I just want to say definitions of gravity while, gravity. while we're waiting for quantum gravity, for the understanding that they don't have, but we're, it's closing in. And it will, as I said, be, that's why I covered Mond a while back. We're, we're going to see uh, Newton uh, vindicated, in my view. I think it's obvious. But definitions of gravity and time now remain unsettled, if you want to say that. I don't think they're unsettled, but they do think they're unsettled. Anyway, Christ's cross, <coughs> Christ's cross and Goliath's head trace to the ladder. I think I left off that way last week. The ladder reveals the assignments of somebody. Who is it? That's the unfallen angels. They are on the ladder. I would draw them on the ladder, but it would... Immediately, somebody would run in here and buy the the rendition for two dollars. Okay, never. But I won't draw it because I'll do a terrible job. The ladder reveals the assignments. Notice how I said that. Not the assignment. The assignments of the unfallen angels. They are intimately entangled with the resurrection of the living because this is about resurrection. He even told you, Matthew 22, 32. He told you, Genesis 28, 12 through 15. The cross is clearly about resurrection. How? What's this head of Goliath doing in all of that? But what are the assignments of the angels? What has Goliath's head to do with the resurrection of the living? Why are the angels on the ladder? To rephrase the question, which is, uh, are they doing the same thing? All the angels have the same exact assignment, or do they all have individual assignment, assignments? What do you think? What are the assignments? What are they doing? Who knew the spot where this would occur, this cross and Goliath's head? Why that exact place? Why this place? So let's take a look at the components really fast here together We are, that occurred at the cross at this time. The cross and the head of Goliath are together. And Simeon the Syrian are together. So I have those things. Again, not only why this place, but why this time and place. He picked that particular time, too, after four days, didn't he? For the, after the 4,000th year. He came in the 4,000th year. So the cross and the head of Goliath and the Simeon, the, I'm sorry, I said that all incorrectly. Uh, uh, 
I'll have to clean that up in a minute. The cross, I think, I'll have to listen to it to see if I screwed it up first, and then if I did, I'll have to fix it next week. The cross and the head of Goliath, Simeon the Cyrenian, the Roman execution detail, the Jewish crowd, the two thieves, all of these brought to this location. Who brought them? Please don't say the Romans. Who brought them? That was a large crowd. What are the Romans thinking while they're, while they're doing this? That crowd, I mean, you might have 15, 20 Romans, but you got a crowd, maybe thousands. What could easily happen here? Now, fortunately for the Romans, the crowd was on board with the execution of Christ, or what they thought was the ex- execution. You cannot take his life. He must lay it down. But all of these have been brought. Who brought them? It, he cannot be coerced. I said that last week. He cannot be brought. Omnipotence is in absolute opposition to control. You can't control omnipotence. God in the flesh has assembled all of these pieces. And he even says, I could, if I wanted to, I can bring down what? What can I bring down? Put a stop to all of this. I can bring down angels. I'm not going to do it. So the angels are here. Everybody has been brought. God in the flesh has assembled all of these pieces. And yes, I am saying Matthew 27, 38 is chronological. That is, then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. Okay, That is after Christ has been raised or lifted up. Then they are crucified with him. So they come after his lifting up, if you will. Then is a time reference. Right and left is Matthew what? 25, 31 through 34. What's that? Right and left. Sheep and goats. Which of the, which of the thieves do you think begged for his life? The one on the right? Or the one on the left? That's a pretty easy... The sheep or the goat? Salvation is on the right. Doom is on the left. I find that particular truth of Scripture to be absolutely fascinating. After Christ was lifted up, because he must be first, he's the first fruits, the two robbers or the revolutionaries, the thieves, whatever you wish to call them, they are then set equidistant from God himself. So we have this fantastic triangle. Uh, and all of the elements help us unravel the mystery that is here. You would naturally realize that Christ did this, had all of these here at the place of the head of Goliath for a reason, duh. He brings all of those things and puts them in a big, wonderful box and says, figure it out. They all fit together. I believe the entire angelic host knew the significance of the burial location of Goliath's head. It wasn't arbitrary. David probably didn't know. So that means that he was influenced and impacted by the Spirit of God to put that head in a particular place. Now, I believe the entire angelic host, fallen and unfallen, knew why that head was buried there especially since they're the latter, metaphorically speaking. They have an assignment. They knew why 
that burial location was chosen. Not just what it was, but why it was chosen. So I have the confluence then of all of these points to the why. The why here question. They're all here. So what am I saying? Let's recap this a little bit. Because I probably confused 99% of the people listening. Jesus Christ, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, God in the flesh, orchestrated his crucifixion. There's no other choice but that one. Because it's his crucifixion. It's his will. It's not my will. It's his will. Or anybody else's will. He controlled it. He directed it. He brought it. He delivered it. Use whatever word you prefer. Uh, Any of the three, all of the three are going to suffice. He included all of these attendees, if you will, the mocking Jews, who then ultimately, what, mourned their behavior. They beat their breasts. The Simeon prophecy. He brought Simeon the Cyrenian, and therefore included the Simeon prophecy. He had Mary and John, his mother and the apostle that he loved. He made sure they were there. He had the Romans and the two thieves. He conducted them all to the place of Goliath's skull because of David, 1 Samuel 17. And all of them, when united into a total, all of this totality, in parts, exposes the reason Goliath's head was buried at this spot, this point. So to rephrase it a little bit more, Christ brought all of these here because they're going to explain why he brought all of these here. Does that make sense? You want to know why I'm I'm at this spot? I'm going to bring all of these components and if you look at them all, you will figure out why this spot. And you'll figure out what happened here before the cross and the burial of the head of Goliath. Okay. And in addition, all of the people that were there were unknowing with the possible exclusion, as I said last week, of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who I am predisposed to include, even though they came post-liminary. In other words, they came afterwards. But I think they're included here. He brought them too. They have a role to play. So they're post-liminary. Furthermore, the angelic realm, again, because they know what he's doing. Now, you may not know exactly what he's doing, but they know that he's put himself on this head, and they know why. They know what happened before the head was buried there. Let me put it again that way. Why he is placing his cross here, even though uh, we have to consider the Noadic flood. Why do I... Why do you see, I know somebody's going to say, what about the Noadic flood? So I've got to do it. So why the Noadic flood? Because the Noadic flood changed the topography of the world. And so, how did that work? How did you find something post-Noatic flood? Let me answer that with a question. Did the fallen and unfallen angels witness the Noatic flood? Of course they did. The, the unfallen or the fallen were absolutely thrilled by it. I think that God did flood the earth again. Genesis 1-1 repeated. How efficient is the documentation division of the angelic host. How good are record keepers are they? Can they find their way around? How sophisticated is their intellect? Another question. Do the unfallen angels know why they ascend and descend on the ladder of Genesis 28, 12 through 15? So the faithful angels, do they know why they're doing this job? Did they ever think they were going to do this job? 
How long did they go before man was created becomes the timeline question again, right? Why was, what did they think? You've heard me say this many, many times. What did they think when they saw the creation of Adam after they heard the 126 declaration that God is triune? What did they think? What did they see Adam as? Get to that in a minute. Let's keep going. I, I think they knew why they ascend and descend. I think the answer to that question is absolutely yes, they know. They figured it out really fast. They were quite intelligent beings. Have the angels realized why Adam replaced Satan? Because that is what happened. Adam has replaced Satan. Why then did God replace Satan with what he did? Why didn't he pick another angel? He did not. He not only did not pick another angel, he did not pick something that even... uh, it has some resemblance, but it's not angelic. It's not spiritual. He picked a physical, organic Eden. And then, then he put in a being of a body and blood and spirit in the image of the triune God. He installed that person as king. Completely different being than they would think. Not quite, but, com- but significantly different. And Adam is installed as not just the king, but he's the federal head over the animals and the earth. And then he has this edict to be to be fruitful and multiply. And remember, the angels, the fallen angels, when they saw that mankind was multiplying, they just they freaked out. We've got to we've got to get involved in this because angels cannot multiply, right? So Adam was was placed as the king that replaced Satan. And we have, he has a physical body and he's got blood and he's got a spirit and he's got this, he's not a triune being, but he is in the image of the triune God, installed as king, federal head of all the animals on the earth and ultimately the human beings, because that was the edict, be fruitful and multiply. So he was going to be king over the entire world. And so uh, that was what they would see as the plan. Do you suppose the angels weighed all of that? And more, I, did they figure out why God did this? It's not just the removal of Satan here, but it's how he did it. He didn't repeat another angel, another system of angel system. He didn't. He went to a human system. So why did he change the system? Did the angels figure that out? Why he did that? As well as how? And the angels would see animals, wouldn't they? Because the animals were created, and what would they see? They would see lions, eagles, oxen. What's that? That's Ezekiel 1, 10 through 12. The four living creatures are lions, eagles, oxen, and the face of a man. So they would say, look, we got, and we covered this a while back, a long, long time ago. We have individual lions, we have individual oxen, we have individual uh, eagles, and we have, we have men. It's almost like he separated out, and then added a whole bunch of other animals. So he almost dissected a cherubim, if you will. Why do you do that? Would they have asked? Could they figure it out? What is Satan? Did they recognize the design and the shape? Yes, they did. The appearance would have been familiar. They would have immediately made the association. Here's something that God always does. It's, it's revealed later in Scripture. God keeps traces of the previous era. You want to say dispensation? Yea, you. But he goes and he keeps pieces. So when he ends an era, he takes part of it and he brings it into the next era, our dispensation. 
at it. Why does he do that? It's almost like something blue at a wedding, right? It's almost like you, you're going to move out of this house and go to the house, some new house, but you're going to take the stairway system. Or you're going to take the carpet. Or you're going to take the cabinets or the refrigerator. That's what he does. When he moves from one era to another, or one dispensation from another, he always has traces of the previous dispensation. He doesn't leave it. He doesn't eliminate it. He doesn't annihilate it. He doesn't end it. He always draws forward all the way to the end. And uh, I'm going to tell you the reason that he does it is because of existence and because of resurrection. And is existence separable from resurrection? Of course not. The reason that he resurrects is because of the existence component to resurrection. Uh, There would also be no mistaking Adam's elevation. The angels would recognize that he had been elevated comparable to them. Adam is in the image and likeness of the triune God, 126. I should put that on the board every week, Genesis 1.26. He is in the image and likeness of the triune God. That made him completely different because the angels are not. The Elohim in Adam is given in... The Elohim and Adam is given dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all of the earth. Again, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. He says, listen, you are in my image. You are in the image of the triune God and you're going to have dominion over everything. Those two are tied together. Adam is exalted. One might suggest that Adam is what? That's right. He's been anointed. He's singled out. He's called in the image of the triune God, the first being so-called that, and he is elevated over the entire earth dominion, over everything. So he is anointed. There's an obvious hierarchy. And the, that aligns Adam with what other anointed being? What other anointed being was given dominion? If you answered Ezekiel 28.14, you would be correct. Satan. So here I am again. Satan and Adam. And the angelic principality would have unhesitatingly grasped this Adam-Satan situation. And this is where 1 Corinthians 4.9 comes into play. Here's what it says. I guess I can go right to it and read it. Actually, I changed it, I think. So maybe I'll just read it as I wrote it. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles last, as appointed men condemned to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, both to angels and men. Um, I, I use mostly the, the old King James there. But I, uh, I, I kind of blended the new King James with the old King James. Don't call me a heretic. I think both of them had accuracies. I think that God has displayed us. This is Paul, the apostles, last, as appointed men condemned to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world, both the angels and men. The word spectacle is literally theater. Christians are carefully watched by angels, especially so the twelve apostles, how they would go to their deaths. The angels would watch these men go to their deaths. And Paul said, that's on purpose. 
That's the plan. We're on the, the angels are going to see what we do. And also look at 1 Corinthians 11.10, Ephesians 3.10, and 1 Peter 1.12 for those of you who would like to see the, uh, the position solidified. Angels desire to look into the unfolding plan of God revealed both in mankind and the, and the creation. Angels are intrinsically involved in this. They're watching, they're observing, they're acting because of what they are seeing. Matthew 18.10 There are those assigned to children. They, those, those angels assigned to children are especially identified by Christ. He has some that are assigned to children and he said those are important to me. Psalm 34, 7, Hebrews 1, 14, 12, 22, the ministering innumerable company of unfallen angels, the faithful angels, the ones that stayed in their estate that didn't go with Satan. Uh, they reside in the city of the living God. They have commissions. They have responsibilities to men to humanity. What's the obvious question then? Why? We should know why. They know why they have these obligations. Why they're going up and down the ladder. Why they're taking care of all of these things. Was that their original assignment? I don't think it was. But it has come to be. We should know why. They know why. And that's my point. Yea, a point. Anyway, Adam was established as the anointed, the federal head over humanity and the federal head over the animal kingdom. The coming human population and the animal population. And obviously Satan was the anointed, the federal head over the entire angelic host. He was the anointed cherub, the highest ranking. And that, that adds information to the deference that Michael gave to Satan in Jude 9 because Satan is the anointed cherub. And as with Satan, so it was with Adam. The angels would have seen quickly the relationship between Adam and the animal kingdom. Adam is in authority. He is a higher level than the animal kingdom. And they would also see that relationship in Satan and the angelic kingdom, because Satan would be the highest ranking. There, again, is a, a rank. There's a hierarchy in the angelic realm. There will be also in the human realm, at least for the, uh, the millennial, the thousand years. And all of that aforementioned now has hopefully prepared us to sift through the barrage of possibilities here that now Ensue. God clearly has his exceptional, meaningful locations. Some locations are incredible. And being omniscient, his recording system, his GPS is perfect. It's unparalleled. You can flood them if you want. He flooded them. He still knows where they are. Duh. He is the great rememberer. He didn't make mistakes. He didn't miss the, the skull. Oh, he's a couple hundred yards off. That didn't happen. And there can be no greater place of significance, in my view, than the position that stood where, where he stood his cross. Do you really think that this was an accident? 
no greater place of significance than the position that he stood his cross, where, where Christ was lifted up. So repeating the central issue, what else happened here apart from Jesus' place of death and the burial of Goliath's head? Again, a wealth of possibilities, and we should make a list because list makers go on a list. And then everyone can decide for themselves because we have free will here. We let you choose. We are not willing to control anybody's decisions. Okay, Christ chose to die here. Why here? I keep pounding away at this. Notice the premise that I'm asking you to concede, and that being that the placement of the cross of God, as well as the burial of the head of Goliath, are not, could not be arbitrary or coincidental. The omniscience of Christ prohibits coincidence and accidents. I am fond of saying that there are no zero probabilities in quantum physics, and that is the case in quantum physics, which becomes an existence-free will discourse. But i got to add here, omniscience, well, let me just say really fast, we said this earlier today, well, in the pregame to the pregame, uh, omniscience does not eliminate free will. So never think that it does. Unless someone listening might drift into the quagmire determinism, uh, omniscience doesn't eliminate free will. Anyway, hopefully we can, all of us agree, that Jesus Christ, the great I am that I am, Exodus 3.14, John 11.25, Colossians 1.15-18. I can keep going. He did not choose the location of his sacrificial substitutionary death, the shedding of his blood, by accident, by happenstance. It's not luck. It wasn't a fluke. It isn't serendipity serendipity hopefully we can all agree with that he did it with his will duh 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 infinite duh so if we can establish that as a starting line well now we can make progress because if you don't if you think as so many do in this world that he just got led there by the Romans and he had no idea where he was going and he's all disoriented and oh I can't even have a door to die and I'm scared to death if that's your view of Christ then you have failed so miserably I can't help you he didn't choose this arbitrarily he knew this location he's omniscient God he's omnipotent God he's the great rememberer and this is where he wanted all of this to happen this spot where he had the head of Goliath buried. Head of Goliath gives you information why this spot. So if we have that as a, again, we can make progress now. So if no one, no human at Golgoliatha had any idea that the Lord God Almighty would and did willfully select this geographic position, then who did he choose it for if no one that was there physically, the human beings, knew what it was? Nobody knew until after the fact. Who did he choose it for and why? That ends up being Valerie's question. Wonderful question from Valerie. Can we also agree that Christ chose the exact place of his baptism is another example. I'm in the river. There's John the Baptist. That's a coincidence. No, it's not. John the Baptist had a key role. Did I hurt myself? No. But stop it. Stop it with, wow, I just happened to be here. John the Baptist happened to be here. I guess, hey, I feel like being baptized. What do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't think you ought to be baptized. Well, I'll do it anyway. If you think that's how it went down, 
What can I say? I don't know what I can say. He chose the exact place of his baptism. How about the t- where he was tested in the wilderness by Satan? Satan is testing him to see if this is really God himself, but Satan probably didn't know that. He didn't tempt him. You can't tempt an impeccable, sinless, omnibenevolent being. You cannot. Temptation is sin. I have temptation. We have temptation. Christ does not. He can be tested for his deity, for his perfection. That's how it works. For he is without spot or blemish. He has to be or no one is saved. So did he... Did he choose the exact place of his baptism? Yes, he did. Did he choose the exact place where he would he would deal with Satan? Yes, he did. To just name two that have this characteristics, as does the site of his entombment. Do you think it's an accident uh, that Nicodemus and Joseph picked that particular tomb, that particular place? Gethsemane, likewise, obviously important to God. Why? What else happened at Gethsemane? It's long been my assessment that Judas and Satan knew why Christ would go to Gethsemane, why he would go to the Mountain of Olives. Mount of Olives. They knew he'd go there. They're combined at the time. This is where he says, take this cup from me. That is a triune verse. What's the cup? The cup, and as I've said many times, the cup is, uh, is why he weeps. Because it's the cup of the sins of the saved. So he weeps for the lost. He always, the forever lost, he weeps for them. His arrest, the farewell kiss of Judas... This is where he where he says, I am. That's the I am that fells the entire army that is brought before him. Every one of them fell. How many were saved? You're going to come there and arrest this guy. And he goes, I am. And you fall into the dirt face first. How long were you there? How long did he make them wait face first in the day until they got saved? The ones that would. If I'm laying there, I'm going, okay. I'm not arresting this guy. Oh, wait. He's going to turn himself in. What's going on? The Lord became angry with Solomon, 1 Kings 11, 7 through 11, because Solomon built a pagan temple on the Mount of Olives. And God called it evil. Why is it evil? He built other pagan temples, but this one, God said, nah, you can't put a pagan temple on the Mount of Olives. It's evil. And God was angry with him for this evil thing. David wept for Absalom, and there's your big clue right there, on the Mount of Olives, because he knew that Absalom could probably be killed and would be killed, and if he is killed and he's not saved, what does that mean his destination is impacted? And he did not want Absalom killed. He weeped for the lost. Absalom is hanging there waiting to be killed. I think that's what? Fortuitous. He's hanging by his hair. Waiting to be, waiting to be murdered, essentially. David gave the order, don't kill him. The general of Israel went and killed him anyway. So I'm wondering if Absalom made it. Absalom. He got time. Every time time is there. Every time time, uh, is there. I look for salvation. So why Gethsemane? Okay, here's our list. I'm going to have to erase my questions. So you get to decide you get to decide which one you want. I'm going to erase HTRP as well, but you all know it's there. 
Okay. Here we go. First one. Where did Satan fall? And again, what we're trying to do is figure out why here. Where did Satan fall? Obviously, that would be pre-flood, right? Where did Cain kill Abel? He dims your choices here. Where did Cain... That's kill. Where did Cain bury Abel? Did you assume they were in the same spot? Why would you assume that? The killing of Abel was what? was an act of anger. It was spontaneous. What about the burial? That's an act of intent. You make the case both of them had intent. But I, I could make the case that they may be different places. Huh? Where did God place Adam in the deep sleep? His deep sleep. And notice his bury part. Just saying, bury and bury. Just I want to point that out. Let me be a little bit more subtle. Not that I'm advocating for it, because I'm not. I just want you to point. I just want you to notice that similarity. That's why it's on the list. Where did God place Adam in a deep sleep? Because a deep sleep is a death-type state. So where did that happen? These are all where's. Oops, can't spell where. I almost spelled W-E-R-E. Where? Where were the two lambs slain? Anytime I have a lamb slain, I'm paying attention to that because what do I got here? The lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. And we know those lambs slain are types of Christ. Where were they slain? That's Genesis 3.21. They were, their skins were used, their blood was used to cover Adam and Eve's sin, right? Where did Eve fall? Oops. And obviously, if you're going to ask that, you're going to ask, where did Adam fall? Because they did not fall in the same place. I know you will misunderstand what the word Eve gave the apple to him, to Adam, who was with her, is not meaning that they were geographically together at the time of both falls. Where is the tree of life? That is a very common position for the cross. Uh, or is the tree of, sure, tree of surely die? Or if you want the tree of death. And then 10 for today. Now, are there more than this? Oh, yeah. I'm giving you the most common. Where was Enoch when he was taken? Those are the ones that come up the most. Most often considered when this kind of question is studied. 
And obviously there are more. I mentioned Christ's baptism, didn't I? For example, the floating of the axe head and Christ's baptism have a relationship. I've said that thousands of times. Christ's baptism and the floating head are obviously unquestionably linked. But the problem remains, why the River Jordan there? Why there in the River Jordan? Why pick the River Jordan? And why in that exact spot does he do this? Obviously, Christ is systematically, meticulously deconstructing the lie of Satan. That's what he's doing. Who got the lie of Satan first? And Christ is tearing it to pieces. He's dismantling it piece by piece. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. I have the cry of the martyrs. Those who were slain for the word of God. Christ is the word of God, John 1, 1. And they're slain for the word of God. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. I have the great multitude clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I could easily put to the Lamb slain. These are the ones that came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made, and that made them white in the blood of the lamb slain. See Revelation 3, 4 through 5. So I have the cry of the martyrs and I have the cry of the great multitude. They overcome. And those two groups are proof. They're evidence. They're something that destroys the lie of Satan. And they are in the ministry of the latter. Why must Christ be lifted up? Because he must be lifted up. Why? Why doesn't he stay on the earth? He wants to be above the earth when he gives his life. Why? I know the brazen serpent. I've got all of that. Okay. Which list answer did Valerie pick? Because Valerie's going to pick one. You figure out which one she picked. Did she pick Satan? Did she pick Cain and Abel? Adam and Eve, death state? Two lambs? Where Eve fell? Adam fell? Tree of life? Tree of death? Which is the most common, do you know? Do you know? Anybody know? Do you know? This is tree of life. And that could be. I'm not going to say it isn't. Sometimes I've said it is. But I want to know which answer did Valerie pick. Hi, Valerie. Which one did you pick? I know which one Valerie picked. I think. Valerie searched the list that I just put up there, and she selected the one that responds to her question. Question number three. Because Valerie's question number three is is basically 1 Corinthians 4, 9, and 11, and 10. (coughs) That we're on display. We're a spectacle. We're on theater. Ephesians 3.10, Peter, 1 Peter 1.12. The current operation and assignments of the faithful, unfallen angels. That's what Valerie is asking about. When were these tasks commissioned? Why were they commissioned? What is the meaning of Hebrews 8.1-6? That describes Christ as the high priest. He's the minister of the holies and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected not for man. So there is a... Um, he, he, there is a, a holy of holies and a true tabernacle, and that is not for man. If it's not for man, where is it, and who's it for? And then we got the we got the meaning of Hebrews eight five. The priests on earth, the Levitical priesthood, served the copy, 
and the shadow of the heavenly things. Moses was instructed, Exodus 25, 40, see that, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. That's God's word. What was he making? Making, oh, Moses was supposed to construct the tabernacle and the altar and the veil and the ark and the table of shewbread and the lampstead and the priesthood garments according to what he had been seen or shown or what he had seen that God showed him on the mountain. It wasn't on earth. Why are these things duplicated on the earth? Why is there an altar in heaven? When did the altar in heaven get made? Why is it made? Why do we have an altar in heaven? And Hebrews 9, 22 through 28 speaks of Christ purifying with his blood the things of heaven. Why did Christ take his blood to heaven? To purify something. Purify what? Again, why do we have an altar in heaven? Do we have any sacrifices in heaven? Why are the things on earth a copy of the things in heaven? The earthly things are copies of the heavenly things. Hebrews 9.24. So what's going on? If only we had more time. We don't. We are out of time. So we're going to go back to this person that we cannot name Anna. That's question number two. Unnamed Anna's query naturally unfolds into what-if scenarios. She asked, can we see the spirit? Because she thought maybe somebody saw one. Maybe she hoped somebody saw one. Can we see the spirit? Can we see the soul, spirit, mind, consciousness, breath of life leave the body? What if we could see the soul, spirit, mind, consciousness, breath of life leave the body? What if we could see it returning to him who gave it? What if we could see the angels that came to get the spirit? What if we could see all of that? Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7. What if there was salvation post-death? Obviously, those are wonderful questions. Uh, but also, obviously, Jeremiah 17, 9. A sinful, desperately wicked heart is deceitful above all things. What, what kind of heart would do that? Because the heart and the mind are interchangeable in the Hebrew. A deceitfully wicked heart would reject salvation, would die in sin if he knew that he had another chance, wouldn't he? So you would eliminate Genesis 3.17 and 3.19. Which means that's Valerie's question. If you knew you had a chance to be saved after you uh, died, you would just wait. You'd be sinful all the way to the end and then say, I'm out of here. Maybe. But I'm confident that that he has a reason that he does not have salvation post-death. He has a reason that you can't see the soul, spirit, mind, consciousness, breath of life, leave the body. Essentially, you're saying that God must show himself. He must show how he made me before I will believe. What's the consequences of that? That's why we end right there.